Fleming Rutledge at the front of your bulletin, if you want to turn there, has a great quote about the way in which God speaks and tells stories. Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopal priest, and she's fantastic. She says this, For the Christian faith is a story more than it is anything else, more than it is a doctrine or a discipline or worship or philosophy or morality. It is above all a story. It is a narrative of God, the drama of God, and how He came seeking after His disobedient and fallen creatures. I love the way that she says that. God is telling a story, and He's telling a story of redemption. We looked at this story last week in Exodus chapter 3 in this very climactic moment in the Old Testament early in the Pentateuch when we see Moses face-to-face with God before the burning bush. And we basically said Exodus 3 is about identity. It's about Moses learning who God was, therefore us learning who God is. And it was also about Moses learning who he was, and therefore it's about us learning who we are. We said last week that John Calvin said, we cannot know God without knowing ourselves, nor can we, not, nor can we know ourselves without knowing Him. And Exodus 3 really is about identity. Who is God? And then even Moses himself asked, who am I? One of my favorite stories of a student in my past as far as working uh, in ministry and hearing of his conversion, the long story short is through a camp and at a conference, he came to a saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. And as he was communicating with me after that moment had happened, or at least after the moment of awareness and awakening for him, he looked at himself in the mirror and he said, it was the first time in my life. And this kid is a high school senior. He said, this is the first time in my life when I looked in the mirror and didn't see anything wrong with myself. Now, what he's saying is this, when I came to know God in that moment, it was the first time I really felt like I knew myself. You see, God identifies not only himself, but God identifies us. And that really is the summary of last week's message, but it's important for us to understand that this morning because in many ways, this morning's message is a part two from last week. So if last week was primarily about identity, this week is primarily about calling. And so if you will, stand with me for the reading of God's Word, which will begin in Exodus 3, and we will repeat a couple verses from last week, and then we will move into Exodus 4 as we consider this concept and this idea of calling before God. Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, and then 4, 1 through 13. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. 
And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside the cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood On the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. George Orwell was a 20th century British novelist. And among other things, he wrote an essay, a short story, if you will, in 1936 that was originally published and then it was broadcast in 1948. That's one of my favorite short stories. It's entitled Shooting an Elephant. There's some debate among literary critics whether this is autobiographical or not. It seems at least in part autobiographical. He talks in the story and narrates the story about a British white man living in the early 1900s in Burma, which is now Myanmar. And he works for the royal police at this point. Uh, British imperialism is strong and rooted in uh, really throughout the world, but definitely in this part of the country uh, or this part of the world in this particular country. And he writes a story seemingly about his own personal resistance to British imperialism. And the story goes like, such. This 19-year-old white British man was living in Burma, living in many ways out of sorts, living in many ways not knowing who he was, what his identity was, or what his place in society was, longing on some level to be integrated, longing on some level to be known, and of course longing to be affirmed and loved, even though he wouldn't necessarily say it like that, and Orwell doesn't write it just like that. But that's the existence of his life. And in many ways, this is our lives and our world. Trying to live in a place where we have some familiarity, but in a place where we feel very disconnected. Where we feel some level of being known, but we really long to be known in a greater and a deeper way. We long for affirmation and to be noticed, much like this 19-year-old British white man living in Burma in the early 1900s. And then one day, a moment happens that's going to give him an opportunity to potentially make his name and his face known in this village among people who really, as he says in the story, 
despised him and hated him. One day, he gets a report that an elephant is rampaging through the local village. And as a result of this, as you can imagine, people are kind of stirred up. People are scared. People are excited. There's, you know, voyeuristic tendencies going on. There's kind of this idea of a wreck on the interstate going on with this elephant crashing through the village. And so he calls, being a policeman, for uh, a rifle, or he grabs his own actual small rifle, and then he starts to kind of follow this elephant from a distance. And along the way, he ends up having conversations with people, and they start to ask him, what's he going to do? And Orwell describes it as if this man felt thousands of wills pressing in on him at once as he was seeking this elephant with a gun that in no way could kill the elephant, but really just out of piqued curiosity, they and he were following the path of this raging elephant through this village with, quote, thousands of wills pressing upon him. Orwell goes on to write at this moment in the story, once again, the man himself is narrating, I had no intention of shooting the elephant. I had merely sent for the rifle to defend myself if necessary. So he actually sends for another rifle. He grabs an initial rifle from the beginning, but the rifle that he grabbed from the beginning, which was like a 44 millimeter rifle, was not going to work. So he sends for another rifle. But once again, he confesses he had no intention of shooting the elephant. He goes on to write, It is always unnerving to have a crowd following you. I marched down the hill looking and feeling like a fool. With the rifle over my shoulder and an ever-growing army of people jostling at my heels, I had halted on the road. As soon as I saw the elephant, I knew with perfect certainty I ought not to shoot him. You feel this moment, right? Keeping in mind that this man is an outsider. He's isolated. He doesn't know who he is, and he does not fit in the fabric of this culture or society. But here thrust a moment where he potentially could find himself in the fabric of society. He could have admiration among his peers. Yet when he's confronted with the moment, he's convinced and convicted there's no way he should shoot the elephant. Orwell goes on to write, They did not like me. But with the magical rifle in my hands, I was momentarily worth watching. And suddenly I realized that I should have to shoot the elephant after all. The people expected it of me, and I had to get on with it. I could feel their 2,000 wills pressing me forward irresistibly. And it was at this moment, as I stood there with the rifle in my hands, that I first grasped of the hollowness, the futility of the white man's dominion in the East. Here I was, the white man with his gun, standing in front of the unarmed native crowd, seemingly the leading actor of the piece. But in reality, I was an absurd puppet, pushed to and fro by the will of those yellow faces behind me. For it is the condition of this rule that he shall spend his life trying to impress the natives. And in so, in every crisis, he has to do what others expect of him. Just let that sink in for a moment. He has this sense that he has to do what others expect 
of him. That's something all of us can relate with. That's not just true in middle school. This is true in life. We feel pressed in upon by what others expect of us. And then Orwell writes, a man wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. I had to shoot the elephant. I had committed myself to doing it when I sent for the rifle. And then he did. And then the story ends with this line. I had often wondered whether any of the others grasp that I had shot the elephant solely to avoid looking like a fool. A man wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. The story concludes, I wonder if anyone ever knew the only reason I shot the elephant was to avoid looking like a fool. This would be a hard confession, especially in the beginning of a sermon on an early Sunday morning, but I wonder how much that line or those lines or this sentiment characterizes our lives. How much does not wanting to look like a fool motivate us and drive us? How often do we wear masks that others essentially have appointed for us and then our faces grow to fit them? I mention this because I think Moses would be very sympathetic to the man in Orwell's story. Moses, in many ways, feels out of sorts. Moses, in many ways, is struggling with his identity. Moses is coming in this dialogue, in this conversation with the Lord, yet Moses, shall we say, is resistant. We'll get to look at a little bit more of that in a minute, but almost in a way that is funny. I mean, the story ends, Exodus 4, 13, or at least our story this morning, the portion of our story, where Moses is engaged in this dialogue about not wanting to do something. And essentially, I think the dialogue could be summarized in some sense of, I don't want to look like a fool. I don't own this. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. Just send someone else. Now, let's, not make, sure, let's make sure this is not lost. And I don't know what your religious background is or your familiarity with Moses of the Bible. The interesting thing about Moses, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've grown up in the church or not, everybody knows something about Moses. This is not a minor character in the Bible. Among other things, the account that we read today about Moses, you know who wrote it? Moses. Along with the other five books, the first five books, of the Bible. So this is not a minor character. This is not like a person on the B team in Scripture, as if there was one, right? This is a primary character in the Old Testament who we find being synonymous, in my view, with this man that Orwell writes about in shooting an elephant. Uncertain, insecure, incomplete. Did you notice the sermon title? Incomplete. And insecure, that's Moses. Yet here we have this story before us in the midst 
of Moses' uncertainty, in the midst of his insecurity, in the midst of his incompetency, his inadequacy, and every other in negative thing that we could say about him, which is also true of us, if we're honest. What do we do with this? The main thing I want us to do with it this morning is to see a call in this story. It was a call specifically to Moses, but it's also a call representatively to us. And I really want to cast this call as something broad. Our section of Scripture this morning in an overarching way is simply calling us to serve the Lord. Exodus 3 and 4 this morning is a call from God to serve Him. It's a call, another way to say it would be, it's a call from God to obedience. It's a call from God to mission. It's a call to serve Him. But this is the plight of a preacher. We're talking about a man and a story that I believe really happened. That is historical and substantial. However, this is 3,500 years ago. And yes, God did call Moses in a big picture sort of way to serve him and to be obedient and to be missional. And even more specifically, we see in chapter 3, verse 10, this particular call. Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So specifically, God was calling Moses to go and to deliver But that was 3,500 years ago. And it was Moses. And it was Egypt. And it was Israel. What does this mean to us today? Right from the beginning, I want to help start to bridge the gap that God too is calling you to go. And that God's calling us to deliver. And that God's calling us to mission. And that God's calling us to obedience. Specifically in God's word, he tells us things like, be holy. Answering the question, so God called Moses to go and to deliver the people out of Israel. What's God calling me to do today? God's calling you to be holy. God's calling us to be faithful. God's calling us to love him and to love others. God's calling us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. God's calling us to love others as we love ourselves. God's calling us to seek and to save the lost, just like Jesus in Luke 19, verse 10. God's calling us to make disciples, an explicit mandate from Matthew 18. God's calling us to do all things for His glory. All of these are big picture yet explicit calls that we see in Scripture in order to serve Him. God's calling us to do those things. Maybe a little more specific this morning as we consider this call that God has put not only on Moses' life, but this this call that God has put on us. God is calling us to build a community. God's calling us to transform culture. God's calling us to do justice and mercy. God's calling us to raise our children in the grace and the admonition of the Lord. God's calling us to sexual purity. God's calling us to delight in the fact that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made in His image. God's calling us not to tear down others through gossip 
and sarcasm and cynicism. God's calling us to speak words of encouragement. I don't know the particulars in your life about what God's calling you to do. I do know this. He is there and He is not silent. And He's calling you to serve Him. Not only generally in the ways that we've said, but He's calling you to specifically serve Him. If the shoe fits, wear it. Maybe He's calling you to a new job. To serve Him in a new job. Or maybe He's calling you to serve Him in doing your job differently. Maybe He's calling you to draw a boundary relationally with a particular person or a group of people. Maybe He's calling you to talk to your kids about something that you've needed to talk to them about, but you're afraid to talk to them about this morning. It seems clear that He's calling you to be a source of strength in your family, spiritually, Emotionally, relationally. Maybe God's calling you to increase your EQ, your emotional understanding in life. Maybe He's calling you to join a small group or to drop a small group. It seems clear that He's calling us to rest in Him, to abide in Him, to sit with Him, and to listen to Him. I don't know what it is I enumerate all these things just so we can start to bridge the gap of 3,500 years knowing that God has called us to serve Him and to be obedient to Him and to go in mission with Him. Not to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, but to carry the deliverance that He started then in our own lives today. And let me say one more thing about the context and the way that God calls us. And then we're going to consider briefly just two elements of what it means to serve the Lord. But the context of this calling for Moses seems to be a normative pattern that we see throughout Scripture. And we could simply say it like this. God always calls us in before He calls us out. God always calls us in before He calls us out. So at this point in Moses' life, he's calling him out to go on mission and to deliver God's people out of Egypt. Do you remember how old Moses is at this point when he's calling him? Eighty. Do you know what Moses has been doing for the last 40 years? Shepherding in the desert. In the presence of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Look at John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist did the same thing. Look at Paul's ministry as he spent time in Arabia before he goes to plant churches. Look at Jesus as he prepares himself or God prepares his own son. Forty days and forty nights. Where? In the wilderness. To be still. To be quiet to listen, to remember or to learn that primarily we are human beings, not human doings. And so as we start to consider what God has called us to do, we've got to realize the normative pattern of His calling always starts with who we are. And who we are are His children, His creation made in His image, to delight in Him because He delights in us. And how do we do that? I don't know. Remember Isaiah 50 from January? 
the servant that Isaiah speaks about, which is Jesus tells us, morning by morning, he awakens his ear to hear as one who is taught so that he may know how to sustain those who are weary with a word. That's a high and holy calling to sustain those who are weary with the word. How do we do it? Morning by morning, we awaken our ear as one who is taught so that we can come in before we go out. And this is the normative way God works his purposes. It's not about working for the Lord. It's about delighting in the Lord first and foremost. Being precedes doing And among other things, if we get that out of whack, we will simply be a burned out moralist. Because Christianity is not primarily a proclamation about what you must do. It's primarily a proclamation about what Christ has done. And the gospel is the beauty of resting in what Christ has done and then letting that send us out after we've received what God has to give us on the end. So that's the context of the calling. We see it with Moses. We see it with many others throughout the scripture. So if the big idea is that we're called to serve the Lord in obedience, in mission, by going and delivering, by being holy, by loving others as we love ourselves, by loving our community, by doing justice and mercy and all the myriad of things that God has called you to do specifically and generally in your life, all under this broader umbrella of service to God... And let me say one thing, whether you're a Christian or not, you've served somebody. You've given your life to somebody or something. We all serve something. Yet the scripture teaches, I believe, that God made us to serve him because he made us for himself. And our hearts will have this restlessness until we rest in him. But as we rest in him, we must serve him. And how do we serve him? We must accept our inability, and we must trust in his ability. And this really is a continuation in some ways of some themes that we looked at last week. We serve the Lord really by accepting our inabilities, and we serve him also by trusting in his ability. Just from a procedural standpoint, in case you fear, I'm just getting to the two points, it was intended for this to be further into the sermon, just so you know. As we accept our ability, I'm once again drawn to a quote by George Orwell, not from shooting an elephant, just circumstantially came across this and rereading that this week. George Orwell says this, an autobiographic, an, an autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. An autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. This is actually an interesting apologetic for the truthfulness of Scripture. The Bible is repetitively revealing disgraceful things autobiographically from some of the stalwarts like Moses, as we see here. Moses accepts or has to learn to accept his inability, his inadequacy, the fact that he's unworthy and that he's insecure. We see this in the beginning in verses 11 and 12 from chapter 3. Clearly, Moses is just proclaiming his unfitness. And then in verse 13, he proclaims his lack of knowledge. And then in 4 verse 1, he proclaims that he's ineffective. And then in chapter 4 verse 10, he proclaims that he is uneloquent, if there's such a word. 
And then in verse 13, he simply resorts to being unwilling. So here's what we have about Moses, who's been called to deliver, I don't know, God's people out of Egypt. He's called to serve obediently. And what do we have about our character here in Moses? Just to summarize, in case you missed it, he's unfit, he lacks knowledge, he's ineffective, he's uneloquent, and he's unwilling. Now, Moses is in the process of accepting his inability. It's easy for us to look back on him and see clearly how inadequate he is for this calling that God's given him. But of course, you understand the bridge at this point. This is true about us too. When we think about that which God has called us to in life, and we think about this overarching idea that we're called to serve him, we're called to glorify and enjoy him, we're called to love others and to love uh, his community and to love this city, to do justice, to do mercy, to bring our children up in the grace and the admonition and the knowledge of the Lord, to be pure, to delight in the way that God made us. This is an overwhelming and crushing burden, and do you not just feel unfit and ineffective? and unable, and inadequate, and uneloquent. And oftentimes, we just have to confess that we're unwilling. What's very interesting about this dialogue that God has with Moses, for one, is that it's a dialogue. It tells us a lot about who God is. God is simply in a conversation with his servant here, dialoguing about what he's calling him to, and what you see in God is a persistent yet gentle determination. And that's gospel right there. That the God of the Bible is gently determined to conform people, not manipulatively, but clearly into his will and to his way. And in this way, he's going to use a person who by all practical purposes is a failure and even sees himself as a failure. It's amazing how powerful failing can be in the recipe for success. I just read in the Wall Street Journal this week a fantastic article entitled The Truth About Failing Spectacularly. I was immediately drawn to it, not only because I was preaching on this, but I would have been drawn to it anyway, because who hasn't failed spectacularly, spectacularly in their life? And this particular author, Sam Walker, writes about two specific examples. He writes about the MS Explorer from 2007 that sunk, and he writes about the Los Angeles Rams offense in the past Super Bowl. And he concludes the article by saying this, the main reason veteran leaders rarely, listen to this, the main reason veteran leaders rarely fail dramatically is that they failed before. They've learned where problems come from and how to spot them in the larval stages. Their genius is being able to identify a ship's weakest rivets before setting sail and formulating a plan that protects them from unsustainable pressure. We don't see that today in the text, but we're going to see that in the coming weeks that Moses is in process. That Moses grows from his failures. But what we simply see right now, in order for Moses to serve the Lord, he's got to accept the fact that he is unable in his own strength to serve the Lord. And secondly, we've got to see that he's got to trust in God's 
ability. Something very interesting from this story, and I don't know if you picked up on this, God does not seek to convince Moses of the things that he fears are true to not be true. For example, when Moses says, I am uneloquent, God does not say, no, actually, you're a great speaker. He just says, who made your mouth? Or when Moses says, I think I'm going to be ineffective, God does not give him the pep talk of like positivity and say, no, 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 you're going to be totally effective. You're amazing. When Moses says, I don't have enough knowledge, God doesn't say, actually, you have all the knowledge you would ever need to know. It's amazing what you see here. Moses says all these things, and it's as if God says, you're right. You're unable. You're ineffective. You're insecure. You're unfit. You're uneloquent. But guess what? It's not about you. And at this point, as Moses is starting slowly to perceive this reality, the tension must be dropping at least internally in his soul as God prepares him for the task ahead, as he starts to move towards a place not of self-sufficiency, but a place of God-sufficiency. Not a place of self-effectiveness, but a place of God's effectiveness. Not a place of self-eloquence, but a place where God himself will be eloquent because God is with him. And that's really what the gospel tells us about serving the Lord. It's not so much that we focus specifically or clearly on how unable or ineffective we are, even on our unwillingness. The gospel tells us or asks us this question. How's this? Who are you looking at? When God has called you to serve Him, generally or in the specific ways that you're seeking to apply this to your own life, and you think about, how am I supposed to go about doing this? Because I feel so ineffective. I feel so uneloquent. I feel so unable, inadequate. I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. Here's a simple question. Who are you looking at? Because in many ways, I feel like this story is God through His gentle gracious determination pointing Moses away from himself and pointing Moses to himself. And that's what it really means to serve God is that we look away from ourselves and we look to God in order to accomplish what he has done. One more point before we conclude As Moses was called to this high and holy task, I can't help but to think about Jesus himself and the task that he was called to, which I already referred to in Isaiah chapter 50 prophetically through this servant that Isaiah speaks about. But then I also think about one of my favorite passages in the New Testament from Luke chapter 10 when Jesus' ministry is picking up steam and it's thriving at this point. And Luke chapter 10 says at one point Jesus calls 72 together. And I've always kind of pictured, rightly or wrongly, I don't know how exegetically salient this is, Jesus somewhat like in a huddle and some sort of like proverbial whiteboard with like X's and O's because he gives some really like specific commands there on how they're to go do ministry. Like he's like they're running plays, basically. He's like, when you go to a town, do this. And if this happens, do this. And if this happens, do that. And so he sends them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they come back to him and they're elated. And they basically paraphrase, it worked. This is amazing. Like demons submitted to us in your name. We saw this and we saw that. And then Jesus says, yes, I even saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. 
mean, this is like amazing stuff. And then Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, simply says this. However, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What I want us to see from that, God is at least as interested in what he's doing in Moses' own life as he seeks to call him to be the deliverer of God's people as he is in the people that God is seeking to deliver. And this is the beauty in our own life. God really has called us to be obedient. God has called us to serve others. God has called us to mission. But what I want us to catch is the beauty of this. God is at least as interested in what He's doing in your own heart and in your own life as He is in the lives of those to whom He has called you to serve. However, do not rejoice in this that the spirits submit to you in my name, but rejoice, what? That your name. God is so prodigal that this whole experience ends up being this immersive, transformative experience, not only for his people in Egypt, but for Moses. And it also calls us, speaking of Jesus to think and look towards the promised Messiah who also was called but who was not insecure or ineffective or uneloquent or most importantly unwilling. You see what we see with this deliverer in the New Testament? The real Moses He was effective, and he was knowledgeable, and he was willing to bring redemption and deliverance for God's people. Let's close in prayer.